Welcome to Season 4 of The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. In the previous episodes of the podcast, I've interviewed a variety of creators about their process and the road they travel to get to where they are. As a change of pace, I thought it would be interesting to kick off this season with an exploration of our brain's relationship to creativity. In their book, The Runaway Species, neuroscientist David Eagleman and composer Anthony Brandt explore what makes human creativity unique among the animals of the earth and how our greatest creators always borrow from the past to move creation forward. That's true of every human being creating. What Picasso is doing, you know, considered among the most original thinkers of the 20th century in any field, uh, he is doing what everybody does when they're making something new. It's just that he took many more steps away from his sources and, you know, did things far beyond what other people had attempted to do in terms of pushing his art form. The Runaway Species was supported in part by Rice University in Houston, where Anthony is a professor of composition and David is an alumni. In this episode, Anthony and I talk about many of their studied concepts of creativity, as well as the story behind how he and David came to co-author the book. Uh, The genesis of the book was a lunchtime meeting in the medical center when David was still living in Houston. And he and I had been friends for a while, and, you know, he's such an amazing scientist and has the added bonus of being an incredible novelist too. He has a best-selling set of short stories called Some. uh, And he therefore has this whole artistic side, which is just makes for wonderful conversation. And we, we sat down, you know, basically over some salads in the medical center and started talking. And we got on the subject of creativity and we ended up talking about it for three or four hours. And, you know, it was one of those situations where people are leaving and going and eating their lunch and disappearing. And we just sat at the table talking, talking, and talking. And at the end of that conversation, he said, we should write a book together. And fortunately, Rice gave us a grant to get us started, which was really wonderful. I, I teach composition at Rice. David is an alum. And they thought this was a great idea to have collaboration between an artist and a scientist. And that's what got us on the road. So when was that? So we started, I'm going to say, in 2013. And it took us four years to write the book. At the same time we were working on it, uh, David was finishing another book, which now has come out called Livewired, which I incredibly highly recommend about brain plasticity. He was doing his PBS series, The Brain, and he was starting his company, Neosensory. So he traveled a lot and and so on. But every weekend that he was in town, I would go over to his house and we'd just sit at the dining room table and work on the book. So I I was really curious as to how you guys um, set about deciding which concepts of creativity you were going to cover. Yeah. So, you know, in our working process, that was one of the very first things that we did. We sort of made... Uh, you know, you could call it like an architectural blueprint. It didn't have any details, but it had the structure of the book. Um, We were going to start with a look at how could creativity have arisen through evolution? You know, why do human brains have this unique capacity? Has to have come from something deeper rooted in the way nature develops brains. But why do we have it in such an elevated sense? And we wanted to address that question um, and then talk about this framework of the bending, breaking and blending 
of a way of describing all creativity as being drawing on just a limited number of cognitive operations. Um, and then apply what we were discussing to businesses, to schools, you know, with the underlying message that creativity is not a gift, it's not a luxury, it is an, an innate part of the human brain software. So uh, how did you guys go about deciding what, how you were going to split up research? Um, so another decision we made right from the beginning was that we weren't going to have separate assignments and that it wasn't going to be Tony would write one chapter and David would write another chapter. We wanted it all in the same voice um, and we wanted to work through literally every paragraph and every work together. So basically one or the other of us would come in with, with some raw material and then we would spend three or four hours wordsmithing it together. And, and one of the things that was really, it was always going to be great writing a book with David. He's an incredibly nice guy. Um, and, you know, he's just so amazingly bright. Um, but we made this compact with each other that if one or the other of us did not like something, that was it. It's gone. No argument, no discussion. It was just if, if it wasn't going to work for both of us, then it probably something was not there that wasn't right, didn't belong in the book. And so we never had any arguments. I mean, it would just, you'd bring something in, the other person would have at it, we'd work it out. And if we liked where it ended up, great. If we didn't, it went into the waistband. <laughs> well, that's fantastic that you guys had that kind of relationship and that kind of agreement. So, um, you know, I mentioned this to you when we first got in touch with each other and, uh, and, it, it remains to me, you know, with me today is like, you know, the book opens with two remarkable examples of 20th century creativity, you know, one being technical, the getting, you know, getting the Apollo 13 back to earth and one artistic with right. the Picasso painting, the Demoiselle de Vion. Mm -hmm. And this really kind of sets up what the whole book is set out like. Correct. So can you talk a little bit about the discussions on, or the format that you guys developed and the preface of the book and yes okay so thank you so much for that question so deep down in the heart of the book is the idea that all creativity works with the same mechanisms and sure you need expertise in your field you know you need to be skilled in whatever it is you're doing However, what your brain is doing in order to generate new ideas is not different for a scientist, for a composer, for a painter, for an inventor. And so one of the central premises of the book was that every example from the arts would be paired with a comparable example from the sciences. And that was, in a sense, one of the most fun parts about actually creating the book was finding examples. I mean, of course, you can get examples about creativity, you know, endlessly but finding examples that particularly matched up, whereas particularly overt that the reader would go, oh my gosh, that is a similar thing, you know? One of my favorite examples like that was later we talk about Picasso and Cubism and the invention of cell phones, which I didn't know anything about. But, you know, originally with, with mobile phones, there was one broadcast tower per city. And you could have maybe a couple of dozen lines. And so people were getting busy signals all the time because you, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't make a call. 
And, uh, you know, this engineer came up with the idea, wait a second, what if we broke the city's territory into individual cells and put a separate tower in each of the cells? And that's where the word cell phone comes from. And essentially, he took a continuous space and divided it up into small units, not that differently from how Picasso divided the visual plane into its own geometry. And so finding examples like that, you know, that was where we really had sort of sparks of excitement when we found things that matched up so nicely. No, for sure. And that's what was really exciting to me with regards to reading the book, because from day one with this podcast being, you know, about people that create things, and it was never just about artistic. I mean, that's why there's such right. a wide variety of disciplines that, you know, I'm interviewing people about on the podcast. Um, can you talk a little bit about and explain a little bit um, the, those three concepts, the uh, the bending, the breaking and the blending with regards to creativity? Sure. So the basic premise is that, first of all, creativity doesn't come out of the thin air. It draws on our warehouse of experiences. Um, in fact, in David's newest book, Livewired, he talks about the fact that it's one of nature's brilliant strokes, which, of course, it arrived at through evolution, through trial and error, that human brains are born largely incomplete. And we basically gobble up the world. And that's what makes us so adaptable and able to learn the native language wherever we're born, appreciate the music wherever we're raised, et cetera, et cetera. That storehouse of experiences also becomes the launching pad for new ideas. And what we argue in the book is that there's three basic cognitive operations that the brain applies on its reservoir of experiences. Bending is the concept of variation, just making alternative versions of something. I mean, we are surrounded by bending. Good example, fonts. Why do we need a thousand, 10,000 different ways of reading the same alphabet? Because human beings like to vary things. We love to bend. The second one is breaking, in which you take something whole and you chop it up into pieces, and then you make something new out of some or all of the pieces. Um, the cell phone is an ex uh, invention of the cell phone is an example of that breaking up the continuous territory of a city into individual units. And then the third one is blending, which is the idea of taking two or more sources and merging them. And again, we see that all over the place, um, you know, house boats and Swiss army knives and, you know, almost anything you can name uh, often has a variety of sources that are being merged together. No, for sure. I, I just, you know, I jotted down a few examples from the book of each of these. In bending, I have the, the Frank Gehry architecture, yes. which, which obviously, it, you know, was still to this day is so unique to people's eyes. Right. And, and it's important to remember, he still has to make a functional building. It has to have doors that are big enough for people to walk in. You know, it has to have living spaces that people are comfortable in. It has to have plumbing. It has to have ventilation. So he's still operating within an archetype. He's not inventing his amazing visions completely out of thin air. But even within those limitations, he's obviously remarkably original and creative. That's the bending concept. And then for breaking, I thought one of the interesting things was pixelation. Uh, I guess it's the Surratt painting and our computer screens are exactly. pretty much the same thing. Correct. And in fact, faxing, uh, you know, when they were trying to figure out how do you send a document from one place to another, 
you know, the great aha was you divide it up into tiny little spots, which then can be printed out by ink. And that became then the jumping off point for pixelation of every digital screen that we are ever looking at. And of course, one of the other points that we make in the book is that in a painting like Surratt's, the, the breaking is very evident. It's overt. I mean, you, you walk up close to the painting, you see that it's divided into dots. The pixelation on our computer screens is supposed to be covert. If we were to notice, oh, well, actually, Steve, your face is just a bunch of little dots right now, that obviously would be wrong. That wouldn't be desirable. And so we're constantly staring. Every time we look at a computer screen, we're, we're looking at a creatively ingenious solution to creating digital images, but we can't see it because it's meant to be disguised from us. For sure. And then there's blending, which, I mean, you can go all the way back in history and talk, you know, as you do, talking about the minotaurs and sphinxes and things like that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, it's one of the most common ways that creativity is often described as recombination. Um, I think the point that we would make is that uh, when creativity by some people is described as only about recombination, you actually need all three of those tools, even in order to recombine things like the Minotaur is only half of a bull and half of a person. So that involves breaking too. And often what you, you know, although our, our book divides bending, breaking and blending into individual chapters, the real magic of the brain is coordinating those three things and using them together with amazing facility to create things that no one has ever seen before. For certain. Um, I, I do want to talk about the school system, creativity in the school system, because you guys really seem to have some strong opinions with regards to way, the way education is being taught in the schools and its limitations with regards to creativity. It's maybe the prime motivation for writing the book. Um, there was recently a, a study which, um, you know, really reverberated with me. Uh, the Equality of Opportunity Project did something very unusual. They looked at the tax records of the families of everyone who had filed a patent in the history of the United States. And they found that if you were from the top 1% of income, you were 10 times more likely to file a patent than somebody from an underserved neighborhood or background. And the reason was not the math scores. That's what they cared about because they were looking at people who had filed for patents. The math scores in those districts at those times were totally comparable. The difference was access to innovation. On top of that, they also found that women, young girls who did not have women inventors at role models tended not to be interested in being an inventor. And minorities who didn't have role models were not that interested in being an inventor either. It showed the incredible importance of opportunity encouragement, having creativity cultivated. And that, you know, part of a point of our book is to say, this is something that belongs to every human brain, especially when someone is a kid, we have no idea of their creative potential, where their enthusiasm lies, what they may bring into the world, and we have to nurture it in every single child. Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, personally, I always felt that you know, creativity was all uh, creativity is also really um, directly tied to critical thinking. And that if if you know, if kids are being taught the arts, that will help them in anything that they do other outside of the arts. 
Oh, totally. Absolutely. And it's important also, even within the arts, that it's not just about imitation. You know, there, there are, I, I always hesitate to say this because anytime there's any arts at all, it's already great. But there are some art programs which stop at, hey, you've done a painting like Monet or you've done a painting like Michelangelo, uh, you know, and, and it's wonderful for learning art history and developing skills. But we make the point in the book that where the arts can really accelerate the development of a child's creativity is in pushing them beyond imitation to creating their own version of something. No, absolutely. You know what? I have questions here that are in a certain order, but I'm going to go out of order here because you've because <laughs> you've because you've touched on something and it, and it relates to another thing. So let's talk about the example that you have in the book of the fourth grade art teacher who draws an apple on the board. If right. you could relate that story, because that's exactly yes, and she's a wonderful art teacher. Met her in person. Um, she uh, starts by drawing an apple on the board, and she asks everybody to draw their own version of an apple. And the class just copies what she's done. And then she went and she basically did a survey of art history showing every possible way of painting an apple, uh, pixelating it, cubist version, you know, you name it, impressionist, fauvism, all the isms of art. Uh, they, they did about 50, 60 different ways. And then at the end of the class, first of all, she had them in designed their own what she called anything apples and every single one of the child's apples looks different which is the absolute telltale sign of a creative classroom and she again closed the class by putting her own apple on the board and this time everybody did an apple their own way awesome and you know it's funny so that then relates to another couple of stories that are in the book one of which is about picasso doing the painting of the the uh, prostitutes where and it's something I didn't know, even though as much as I love Picasso, I didn't realize that he had borrowed the face of one from a from a sculpture and, and the face of another from an African mask. Yeah, in fact, you know, Picasso was called a vampire. He was called a vulture, a scavenger because he was constantly taking the best of what he saw around him and making it his own. He was notorious in the poor Garrett studio that he shared with a bunch of other artists for running around looking at what other people were doing and going and then, you know, appropriating it. And of course, raising the level of it, no doubt, because he was obviously so incredibly talented. Um, and the same thing with Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Um, you look at paintings of African mass, photographs of African mass, and you will see it's a, a, a dead match for what Picasso puts in the painting. And that Tunisian face, that Tunisian um, sculpture of that face as well. Well, and the point is too, that's true of every human being creating. What Picasso is doing, you know, considered among the most original thinkers of the 20th century in any field, uh, he is doing what everybody does when they're making something new. It's just that he took many more steps away from his sources and, you know, did things far beyond what other people had attempted to do in terms of pushing his art form. Well, just like that is the example of Norman Rockwell. His painting of Rosie the Riveter is, for all intents and purposes, exactly like Michelangelo's Isaiah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I'll tell you, uh, that was David's favorite example. Uh, we we had took a lot of negotiation with the Norman Rockwell Foundation to get the permission to show that image, but we were we, we had to do it because David just loved that example. He thought that was amazing. You know, the transformation from Moses to Rosie the Riveter, and yet when you see the two paintings side by side, it's unmistakable. Absolutely. So there, there are a lot of takeaways from the book with regards to creativity and how humans have been able to adapt to change. And you talk about the brain seeking novelty and how creativity is a synthesis of everything that we've learned in the past and how creativity depends on our memories, which is a lot of what we're talking about here. Right. You know, collective knowledge that then turns into the created form. Yeah, in fact, there's two medical cases which are very instructive about this. Um, there is an artist who did a, a lot of uh, covers for the New Yorker magazine. She was a very successful graphic artist, and she was stricken with brain encephalitis in, in midlife, and it destroyed all of her biographical memories. And when that happened, when her storehouse of experiences essentially became emptied, she could no longer draw. There was nothing to draw upon. And in fact, the only part of her brain that was unharmed was her language center of her brain. And so she continued to want to be creative, but the only thing she was able to do was word puzzles. And you know, you can almost draw a straight line from whatever was in her brain to what she was able to make creatively. And then there's Susie McKinnon, who was born with a, a, a very rare genetic condition where she is not able to form biographical memories. So she doesn't remember her childhood. She doesn't remember ever going on vacation. Her husband says they're happily married because she never remembers that they argued. She lives in a 15 minute slice of the present. And the interesting thing about it is that if you ask her, uh, where would you like to go on vacation or to imagine something in the future? She doesn't even understand the question it has no meaning to her because not able to look back at what she's already done. She has no way of forecasting what might happen. So those are two very palpable examples of how much we need to have a reservoir of experiences in order to envision something new. And again, I'll reference the book with one of the interesting things that is parallel to that is your um, examples of the Renaissance painters who've painted lions having never seen a lion in their <laughs> lives so their their paintings are merely from the conversations from what people may have told them and when you look at it it's like every lion looks different because none of right. these painters had actually seen a lion exactly that right beautiful example that's totally right and it's really kind of funny you know but you you know it's like the game of telephone by the time the information got to them about what a lion looked like it was the best that they could do no for sure so there are so many great quotes throughout the book. And as I mentioned to you before, when, you know, before we pressed record on the interview, there's, I made so many notes. I have highlighted so much of this book. I had to stop myself at one point because I realized I was just going to highlight the whole book. <laughs> oh, but there was so, so many, so many passages and so many quotes that were so inspirational. And I decided that I would pick one. I went uh, earlier today, prior to this interview, I went back <laughs> over the book. I said, I could just pick one. And the one that is one of my favorites and, and that I've ended up to, that I wanted to discuss with you was from Francis Crick. And because mm. I, because it not only relates to art, it relates to business. And I think that one of the things, again, when I 
My fascination with creativity is not just the arts. Um, I've worked in marketing for in the music mm. business for 38 years, and I always tried to come into meetings with creative solutions, creative mm. ideas on how we were going to market the latest record, the latest artist that we're going to have. So when I read this quote, I just, I'm like, yes, this is exactly the case. It's like the dangerous man is one with only one theory mm. because he'll fight to the death for it. And I think that that is just bang on with regards. I mean, we've all sat in those kinds of meetings where people come, yeah. to, you know, are, they have no flexibility. They come with one idea and they'll go down to their death thinking that's the way you've got to do it, as opposed to being open-minded enough to allow others to enter the room with their own ideas and maybe, you know, maybe form something that's a collaboration or maybe be able to bend that idea to use your term into something that's, you know, that will work better. Yes, no, absolutely. And, you know, if you go to talk to a great money manager in the stock market, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to say diversify. I remember my, my grandmother gave me as an inheritance of some stock with Chase Bank. And, you know, when when I gave it to a friend of mine who was a counselor, the first, he said, the first thing he said was, Tony, I know your grandmother gave this to you. It's very precious, but I'm going to sell most of it because you're not diversified. And I remember my wife and I putting up a fuss about that. You know, it was a great stock at that time. But you know what happened in 2008? That stock went down in value to a dollar. And thank goodness we were already diversified because it, it saved our necks, you know, in terms of the, the nest egg for a, for a composer and his wife, a singer, you know. Um, the point is that we we trust options when it comes to the stock market and that's where safety is there's safety in numbers there's safety in possibilities it's exactly the same thing with creativity you don't ever want to overinvest in only one solution too early in the process only when you've worked through it tested things out see what you know the pluses and minuses of any particular ideas eventually you work yourself off and towards one answer but that should never come too soon no, for sure. So I just want to actually, I want to pull up a couple more examples of quotes that really um, struck me. Because um, again, because this is the kind of stuff that I, I read these kind of things and it makes me, it makes, it's like a jumping off point for some, <laughs> some wonderful ideas and some real truthisms in one's life. Um First is Benjamin Franklin. If everyone is thinking alike, then no one is thinking. Yeah, I love that one. That is just beautiful. And then the other one, which is um, much more contemporary, is from Astro Teller. Failures are cheap if you do them first, and failures are expensive if you do them last. Yes, yes. And, you know, our English language is a little impoverished. The word failure in this situation should not belong when you're talking about creativity. Um, you know, there's no architect designing a building who isn't going to do 40, 50 renderings of different possibilities, some that are meant to integrate with the neighborhood more closely, others that are wilder, more extravagant, answering different needs of the clients and such and so forth. They're only going to end up building one building, but it would be wrong to say the other 49 are failures, you know, they are part of how you arrive at a solution. So, you know, that's where I you know, Astro Teller is really trying to capture that in what he's saying. The very beginning of the process is all about being generous with the options. And then we, you know, we refer to it as a funnel of ideas that you start with 
the maximum number of solutions, but the minimum investment in any of them. And then gradually through working uh, deeper and deeper and deeper, you eventually commit finally to one answer. For certain, and again, the the Apollo um, example and the Picasso example certainly drew me in. And as I said, as I got into the book, so many things made me think, but I related to so much of what was in the book. Um, one of the things that, one of the concepts that is discussed in the book goes directly to something that I say to my stepkids all of the time. <laughs> and um, the concept in the book is really about how, you know, you need to fail a lot in order to make something happen. And one of the things I say to my stepkids all the time, and I'm sure I've said it on this podcast in the past, because I seem to say <laughs> it a lot, is nobody learned anything by being right all the time. Yes, totally true. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um, I was thinking about how human beings are willing to fail a lot, actually, more than probably any other animal. We, it, it goes under our radar screen a lot, but just think about sports, uh, games of chance, playing Scrabble with your family. You know, there's no other animal who is as willing to lose as we are, lose gracefully, you know? Lose as just a part of the experience of living. Uh, most animals will fight that tooth and nail, you know, that's how their hierarchies are created. We, we seem to implicitly understand that it takes experimentation and experimentation means you have to have risk and risk means that sometimes it's not going to work out. That is wonderfully woven into our just nature of relating to the world, but it is always worth highlighting that because there is such a stigma around failure, especially in Western society. And we constantly have to be talked down off of that ledge that there's something wrong with it. Certainly. Well, Tell us a little bit about your own creativity. What, do you, what is it that you are creating these days? So right before the pandemic hit, uh, I had the uh, premiere of a chamber opera that I wrote. So a chamber opera is an opera with only a few characters and with a small number of instruments. It's not like grand opera, which can have a chorus and full orchestra. And it was an updating of the Apollo and Cassandra story. Um, Apollo offers Cassandra the gift of prophecy if she'll become his lover. And she turns him down, so he curses her and says, okay, you'll have the gift of prophecy, all right, but no one will ever believe you. And we updated that story to make it a story about a climate change scientist who is a brilliant scientist. The opera opens with her giving a TED talk. Uh, uh, telling about her ideas and Apollo is a venture capitalist who offers to support her work. And, you know, he propositions her after a meeting, she turns him down and then he sets out to ruin her career and wants no one to ever believe anything that she's saying. And we found that the librettist Nina Beam and I found that to be a, a story that fit so well, all too accurately with both you know, the issues of sexual harassment that our society is dealing with, and the fact that there are too many people who have, as of yet, have not awoken to climate change. And then um, during the pandemic, I wrote a string quartet, which is going to be premiered in an unusual place. It's going to be premiered at a conference about dance in the brain um, at the Kennedy Center. It was postponed. It was going to be uh, last September, and now it's going to be a, a year from April. Um, and my idea in that quartet was to represent different features of the brain in each movement. 
So for instance, one of the things we talk about in the book is repetition suppression, which is the idea that if a stimulus becomes repetitive or predictable, our brains eventually tune out to it. And in the book, we say that's one of the great motivators for creativity, because if you're trying to be a social creature like human beings, but you're tuning out when things become too repetitive and predictable, then it's very hard to bond and have long-term relationships, you know? Ask anybody who's been married for a certain amount of time and they've all experienced repetition suppression. So I have a movement in my quartet that acts out repetition suppression, where an idea is shocking when you first hear it and then it gradually fritters away so you almost barely notice it by the end. Um, and then right now I'm writing a piece for something I knew nothing about until I was asked to write the piece. Someone has invented a device so that you can play a cello while standing up and walking around. It's called a block cello. So I'm writing a piece for a block cellist who is a dancer and she's going to choreograph her part and then it's, she's accompanied by three seated cellists. So it's a one moving cellist and three seated cellists. I, we've covered everything that I have put down here. Like I said, I, you know, I could go page by page and, it's, <laughs> and but I, I think that, you know, we've covered everything that are the key points of the book. I think, I don't know that, I don't think we've missed really anything overly major. There is, let me add one thing in case this is something interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, in the, it's been a wonderful experience putting the book out into the world and, and, David and I have met a lot of people talked about the book. And one thing that often strikes me is how, how much fear can be involved around this topic. And people are nervous, they're anxious, um, especially adults. And people may have told, told you at some point in your life, you're not creative. First of all, don't believe them. That's not possible. It's just physically not possible. But the second thing is that I think it's important to decouple being creative and necessarily sharing it with the public. It's possible to be very creative and enjoy doing all sorts of things, but you don't have to share it. There's no requirement that you share it. And I think it's important for everyone who may be saying to themselves, well, gee, you know, especially in the pandemic, I'm so challenged to break routine. I wanna do new and exciting things. I have a lot of free time on my hand. What a beautiful time to have some creative time. If you would only be comfortable with a four or five star review for what you've made, share it only with people you care about, people you trust. You don't have to put it out into the world. Only if you're able to deal with one to five stars should you risk putting it out in public. More important is to keep doing it than any kind of public response that you would ever get. And I will tell you quite honestly, in all of this process of studying creativity, that was one of the most important lessons for me. I, I came to the conclusion, which is inescapable when you look at the history of the arts, that if you put anything out into the world that is that even modestly thought-provoking, expect a one to five star review. Expect a whole spectrum of responses. I mean, you would think that the composer's dream is to walk out onto the stage and see the whole audience jump and give you a standing ovation. Who wouldn't want that? But I realized that a more reasonable expectation was to come out and have some of the people standing up and other people walking out of the hall pretending they don't know you. 
And once I realized that that was normal to be expected and actually was probably a stronger indication of success, I was able to better function as a professional. But it's also important for people who don't want to be a professional, don't need to be a professional in whatever creativity that they're trying. Hold your work close to you. Share it only with people you care about. This episode of The Creationist was inspired by the Netflix documentary, The Creative Brain. The film is narrated by David Eagleman and is based on the book, The Runaway Species. I found both the film and the book incredibly inspiring and eye-opening, and I highly recommend that you dig into both. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you haven't already, please take a moment to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and new episodes will be delivered to you as soon as they go live. And if you have any friends that might be interested in some of what we're covering, please let them know that we exist. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. Thank you.